0: House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres.
1: So, Daniel M. Jaffe, thank you for being
0: here. Uh, My pleasure, Al. Thanks for having me.
1: Wow. So, where did this come from for you to start writing? I, I understand it was a little later in your life, um, you didn't start out as a writer as a kid and work your way through. You kind of went to it after a different career.
0: You're right in terms of formal the formality of writing. Um, I, I started off uh, professionally as a corporate securities lawyer, and I did that work for a number of years, and, I, and it was fine. I mean, I, I, I liked the people I was working with and, and all that stuff, but the profession itself wasn't satisfying me and i actually had always written even as a child i loved writing but i never thought of it as something to become a mainstay so it was always just one of those things i did when i had a little extra time but the the more dissatisfied i became with lawyering the more i started asking myself you know what is it i really want to do and writing just kept coming up so so I made a bargain with myself while I was lawyering, which was if I could, while lawyering, write a novel, complete a draft, and want to write more, then I would quit. So I spent two years, nights and weekends, writing a novel, which, of course, being my first was terrible, and it's, it's in a drawer somewhere, which is where it belongs but i i was able to do that i was able to to get a draft done and to think you know i love the process i just want to do more so at that point you know i had been saving up um for years knowing that this day might come and um and so i gave my notice and I, i i kept my um, uh, license as a lawyer, you know, up for for ten years after I left my job, just in case I needed to return to that profession. But but I didn't, and then I started publishing short stories, and and then I reached a point where I felt, you know, I I can't, I don't know how to take my writing farther. So then I went for a master's of fine arts program, and and that just opened up my writing completely, and then I started teaching writing in addition to writing, and so. That's been my life ever since, and um, no regrets, no regrets.
1: Well, that's good. Now, now your books in general, um, they're memoirs sort of, but they're also fiction. How do you combine the two?
0: Well, you're right. There's a lot of it. Sometimes the posture I take is I take uh, a fictionalized character contemplating his own life. So it feels like memoir, but it is fiction. But through a lot of the work, um, I, I do take aspects of my own life and put them on the page. And we can look, the different books are different. So like my first published novel, which was called The Limits of Pleasure, was about a, a 40-ish gay Jewish man who was not really at all like me. Rather, he was the me I was both afraid of becoming and who I secretly wanted to become. And what I mean by that is, is I tend, I've grown up, I grew up in a very observant Jewish uh, household, and although I'm not observant anymore, I'm still a sort of quietish <laughs> kind of person. Um, but this character of mine was outgoing and obnoxious, outgoing in an obnoxious way and, and incredibly promiscuous and blasphemous. And so basically um, saying and doing all the things that in life I would be like embarrassed or ashamed to say and do. Um, but it, part of me would love to act out that way. You know things we can write we can 't always do, so um, he he was kind of my alter ego, and I had great fun with that character, so that was that one um, i I later on wrote a, a collection of short stories basically it 's short stories that I had written over many years on gay and Jewish themes with different characters that that I compiled. Uh, but the stories, many of the stories themselves, were indeed based on sort of autobiography. So stories about dating, stories about uh, breakups, stories about uh, serious relationship, the pain of losing relationship, issues about coming out to parents. Um, that that collection was called Jewish Gentle and Other Stories. And like, I'll give you an example. One story from that collection uh, called Kaddish was the story, a story that never actually happened to me, but something I was always afraid of happening. It was about a young man who comes out to his Orthodox parents who then reject him and treat him as dead and hold a funeral. And this character attends his own funeral, the funeral that his parents have for him. And that was something that always worried me before I came out to my parents um, was that I would somehow be shunned or treated as dead uh, because back, I mean, I'm I'm in my early 60s now, so we're talking, you know, more than 40 years ago. um, That was not uncommon among the really observant um, and so forth. So those are the, the, the first two books. And then there was another book, um, The Genealogy of Understanding, which I would say was more reflective of me, in that it was a, a main character, an adult gay Jewish man, who was trying to see if he could analyze Torah, the Hebrew Bible, in a way that would show that that the Torah is actually adaptable and flexible so that if one finds rules that don't feel comfortable, like the prohibition against homosexuality, one can use it as a starting point to figure out a way to analyze tradition and theology rather than as a, a, an immutable rule. So it's a, it's a series of stories uh, about a community, a fictional community, but many of the community members actually reflect community members of my upbringing. And indeed, half the book was about stories about uh, my own upbringing and my family and my parents and my mother uh, developing dementia and my father having to cope with that as well as coping with a gay son. And it was those Stories were so autobiographical that when one of my mother's oldest friends started reading it, and this is a friend my mother had had since childhood, so she knew my parents from youth, she told me she couldn't read it. It was too painful because it was so real. So that, I mean, I love that kind of reaction, meaning I'd succeeded in capturing something. Um, although I'm sorry, she didn't finish reading <laughs> um, <laughs> And then... Um, My most recently published novel called Yeled Tov, which in Hebrew means good boy, is indeed a very autobiographical story of my teenage years when I was terrified of being gay because... I felt I can't be gay and a good Jewish boy at the same time, and it was Yel'tov really captured my my struggle. And when some high school and college friends of mine read it, they their reactions were you know, well, we recognize it all. Um, of course, certain things changed you know to make a good a good novel, but. It, it, it was very autobiographical. But then we come to my, my forthcoming <laughs> book, which is, is completely different. This is a, a, a collection of short stories called Foreign Affairs, and it's coming out from a wonderful, wonderful press called Rattling Good Yarns Press. I, I saw that you actually interviewed uh, my publisher, Ian Hensel, not that oh, long yeah. ago. Yeah. yeah. And um, Ian was a delight to work with. What this is, this is a collection of stories uh, of, of men, some gay, some bi, some trans, some straight, who travel. Uh, it is based on my own travels and that i only write about places where i've been but the characters are, are are fictionalized and made up and there are a lot there's a lot of magical realism uh the characters experience romance or dating or sex or loss and so forth but each story is really tied to a place so just to give you one example there's a story that takes place in prague where a gay jewish young man goes and he has weird experiences, and over time he realizes he's been encountering a Holocaust-surviving ghost. So that's nothing that ever happened to me. <laughs> I'm happy to say. <laughs> uh, um, but it was really just, just sort of uh, imagination. So, so, so the new book coming out in the fall, Foreign Affairs, is, is sort of a departure, you know, in that way, right. from, from my other work. Yeah. Right.
1: So, you know, when you, when you um, say the characters are fictional, so are they completely created out of the blue? Uh, are they people that you've run across, some that you know? Is it uh, Where do you get that character from?
0: It does vary. It really does vary. So, for example, um, in, in Foreign Affairs, there's a story that takes place in the city of Coimbra, Portugal. Um, And that story, my my husband, Leo, and I went to Coimbra and we visited a friend of ours. Actually, one of my, my closest friends, she's a writer. Her name is Eve Lecters. And Eve and I studied for our MFAs together in the 90s. And Eve moved there to sort of fashion herself anew. So that was an idea I wanted to capture. But instead of having a story about Eve or a woman, based on eve i thought about gee, coimbra was such a fascinating place that combined the old and the new and we spent an afternoon in a cafe that had once been part of a of a church so a church was transforming itself i thought what a perfect setting to write about a transgender character who was who had moved an american transgender character who moved to coimbra to sort of restart her life so I thought, oh, that's great. So, so there are elements of Eve's life underlying it, but Eve is not a transgendered person. So you see, I, I sort of started with somebody real, but then really changed it, you know, and transformed. Um, the, in, in some of my stories with, with parents, for example, a lot of the stories, like, will indeed be based on my parents in Yeled and Tov, the the novel, the autobiographical novel about coming out as a teenager. uh, Those parents are very much echoing my own. Um, In some of the stories I have characters who are rabbis. Uh, Those will be composites of rabbis I've known, um, some more open-minded and some more close-minded. But I have to tell you what's so interesting about the process of writing characters who are either based on real people or sort of variations of real people is, is that it's writing them has really helped me learn about myself and surprise myself. And I'll give you an example in, in the, the novel and stories, The Genealogy of Understanding, which is the one where the, char- the main character is trying to, to really explore Torah, I have a story where the main character, uh, a gay Jewish young man, goes to his rabbi, the rabbi of his childhood, his, his congregational rabbi, and asks the rabbi to perform a commitment ceremony for this young man and his boyfriend. And the rabbi refuses. Well, the refusal part is what I would have anticipated had I actually gone to my congregational rabbi of my childhood and asked. He would have refused. Okay. But, you know, as you know, when when we write fiction, in order to do justice to our characters, we really have to get inside their minds and hearts and try to understand their perspectives. So, in writing the confrontation between this gay young man and his rabbi, I have the gay young man angrily saying to the rabbi, you know, just because the the old rules say that you can't marry us, rabbi, you don't have to listen to those old rules. Can't you think for yourself? Don't you have free will? And as I was writing, what came out of the rabbi's mouth was, Obedience is also a choice and an expression of free will, which was a thought I had never had before. And, and all of a sudden, I had new respect for my fictional rabbi, as well as the rabbi of my childhood. And any, any observant person who does make the choice, yes, I want to follow old rules. And no, I don't want to change. I don't personally myself agree with that perspective, but I have to respect it. And so the process of writing gave me new respect. And, and similarly, when I would write stories of confrontation between a young gay Jewish man and his observant father, because that was my situation and my father, and I indeed did have conflicts in terms of conversations and arguments and so forth after I came out, but writing from the father's perspective and really getting into the mindset of a father who had hopes and dreams for his son, who sees those hopes and dreams dashed, who thinks his son has taken up ways that are problematic or dangerous or even against religious values, then the father feels a great deal of guilt for thinking, did I do something wrong? Did I not raise my son properly? And in writing those fathers in these stories, it really helped me better understand my own father. And I have to say, it truly soothed angers I had had toward my father. And our relationship improved tremendously because my anger subsided and and my father made tremendous efforts and came around and, and actually grew to love the man who's now my husband Leo. So, so, you know, we worked at it from both directions, but the writing really helped tremendously. So uh, when I do write uh, stories based on real people, that's really a a good thing, but I can tell you uh, another example that's kind of very different Um. When I was as an adult, there was a, I, I learned, and, and having moved away from my my family community in New Jersey, I, I lived in Boston for many years, and now I live in California. But while I was living in Boston, there was a scandal in my hometown, and what the scandal was was that a local rabbi, not mine, not one I had ever met, a local rabbi not only had had an affair with another woman, he was married, had two kids, he arranged to have the woman murdered, his wife. He arranged to have his wife murdered. And it was such a scandal. He was arrested, and two kids, one of them sided with tried to defend him. One of them wouldn't have anything more to do with him. It was just awful, awful. So it got me thinking, I wanted to write a story, of, not that story, that had already happened, but a story about a rabbi who was unfaithful. And, and so I did. And, and so I created a fictional rabbi, but it was, the story was sparked by a real event and real people, but it didn't track what really happened at all. Mm-hmm. You know, right. so there are all different ways, and then sometimes I just make things up out of the blue. They they things just do, you know, strike me, or someone tells me an anecdote, and it's like, oh wow, that would make a great story. Um, or here's one. Uh, one day, my my husband walked into my home office, and just with with his laptop, and said, "Look at this picture," and it was a picture of an old Jewish man seated. In an airplane, wrapped completely in a see-through plastic bag. <laughs> and that's like, like what? <laughs> what is this? And so he said, "You have to write about this." So, and my husband's not Jewish, so I, if any Jewish ideas come to him, he says, "Dad, you have to write about this." <laughs> yeah, it's up to you. It's up to me. <laughs> um, so. So I did research, and what I discovered was there is a phenomenon, not widespread, but it exists, in, 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 um, among, in the Jewish community, we can trace our lineage, you know, originally when the Hebrews left Egypt, there were 12 tribes, and among the tribes, there was Moses' brother Aaron, and Aaron was the head of the, the priests, of the priestly class. So, through the millennia, we have kept track of who is a descendant of Aaron. And in Hebrew, the, the word for, for, for priest is uh, this class is Kohain. So, if you see someone whose last name is Kohen or Khan, or even cats. There are all kinds of derivatives. These names indicate to, to fellow Jewish people that they their lineage goes way back. Well, the priests. There are certain biblical rules for priests, and among the rules are that they're not supposed to go to a cemetery. The cemeteries are thought to be ritually impure or unclean and priests have to maintain purity. Well, these are ancient ideas that go back to when there was the temple, an active temple in Jerusalem, and and the priest needed to be pure and clean going to the temple. But those ideas have have continued through the ages, and so for many who are observant uh, and of the priestly class they will follow these rules well there are some people who take it to such an extreme that they think oh well if i'm in an airplane the airplane might be flying over a cemetery so i have to shield myself from that so they wrap themselves up which is ludicrous because even if you accept the premise it's like well isn't the hull of an airplane sufficient shielding (laughs) as opposed to a plastic bag inside the airplane but okay that's their belief system and 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 so they do it so I thought I thought I have to write about this so I wrote a story about a gay young man who's returning to the United States after having attended a gay pride celebration in Israel and he finds himself seated next to an old man who, during the flight, just sort of wraps himself up in a plastic bag, and it gets the two of them talking, and it gets the young man thinking. So this is, like, one of those stories completely made up. Uh, you know, the characters are just completely out of, out of thin air. Uh, and I had great fun with it, I have to say. Uh, the story is entitled Gift Wrapped. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I... Uh, I enjoy it. I have to say, you know of course, my work expresses my bias, and uh, uh, my bias is that uh, those kinds of of rules and practices are a little outdated, uh, but that's my perspective <laughs>
1: so, <laughs> so so a lot of your writing seems in a way it's it's like therapy it's it's something that helps you go get through certain things or certainly um, think about a lot of these topics um, more deeply than, than you would if you didn't write. Is this, this is also
0: something you want your readers to get out of your books? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, I guess I, I... Well, I do want to be thought-provoking. That, that is true. Um, I... What I hope... I guess different different writings... I'm hoping, elicit different kinds of responses. Um, I, I don't often get emails from unknown readers, but I did get some after my uh, the autobiographical novel, Yeled Tove about coming out. And uh, in, in the novel, the character uh, is late high school and then early college. And it's in early college that he comes just to, to sort of come to begins to come to terms with himself and to start accepting himself. I got an email from someone I had never met from my college class. And the subject line of the email was Yeled Tov hit me hard. And the substance of his message to me was I just finished it um, your novel helped set me free and i just started to cry to think that my work could have triggered something that important and profound in somebody else was just like okay this is why i've been writing all these years to be able to to help this fellow and he explained that he you know was also gay and Jewish and, and, and struggled and he married women twice and of course those marriages didn't work. It's like, no, he's not bisexual, he's gay, but he was repressing it and couldn't come to terms with it and he'd sought other religious uh, affiliations in order to, to maybe find some solace. But then for him to say that my novel was helping him figure out a way forward, it's like, okay, wow. Yeah, let me do the work. Let me put it down on the page, and then you, if if you can read it and it can show you something, that's fantastic. Um, I love it when people tell me they you know they read something and they start to cry, because I love just touching other people's emotions. I love it equally when they tell me they laugh. You know, they laughed out loud for this, that, and the other. I try to combine humor um, with other other uh, emotions. So I would say I, my, my reasons for writing um, generally are twofold. Uh, I, I do it for myself, as you said, it's very therapeutic. And, and if I don't write, uh, like for a period of time, I find myself getting kind of antsy, um, even a little grouchy. <laughs> my husband can attest to that. <laughs> uh, so writing calms and soothes me. Um, but they're also, you know, on occasion, there'll be a real reason to write something, um, one that comes to mind, uh, a story that's in the genealogy of understanding, was based on a trip my husband and I made to Argentina. My husband is a, is a professor of, uh, of literature and theater, and uh, his specialty is the, the, the theater of the Hispanic world. So, a few years ago, he was invited to participate in a conference in Buenos Aires where neither of us had ever been. So, we, we figured, okay, this is great. It's, you know, We'll make a vacation out of it in addition to his conference and so forth. Well, I... When I was in uh, in law school, um, I was very active working for international Jewish human rights causes, um, working with other law students to do legal research and so forth that we would then send to international organizations to help support human rights. One of the projects that I had worked on was during the... In the, the you know, late 70s, early 80s, there was a dictatorship in Argentina. And a lot of young people, if you ever saw or read uh, Kiss of the Spider Woman, the, the movie, the novels about that. Uh, a lot of people would be just arrested for expressing political views or for suspicion. They would be disappeared, meaning they would be picked up their family would never see them again, would never hear about them again. What was actually happening is they were tortured and murdered. Many of them just uh, <clears throat> drugged and then dropped by helicopter into the river. Uh, and, and and that was the end of them. So we had done, as a group uh, in law school, a project where we did some legal analysis and submitted it to international Jewish organizations, including one, probably one of the most well-known B'nai B'rith, which was Trying to be supportive of the Jewish community in Buenos Aires okay well I had these documents so I thought well gee you know we're going to Buenos Aires they've been sitting in my garage since the early 1980s I mean maybe they'd be of interest to the Jewish community somebody in Buenos Aires so I did research and I found that there was indeed at the Jewish Community Center there uh, an archivist so I went online and made an appointment with her and so forth and so on so when I got there uh, I took these documents and I met with this woman and she looked them over and she said, you know, we have an organization, um, Parents of the Jewish Disappeared, Parents of those young Jewish men and women who were arrested and, and, and never found. Uh, she said, would you be interested in, in meeting with the president of this organization who lost his son so many years ago? And I said, You know, the idea made me incredibly uncomfortable, but I felt, well, it's one of those, you know, duty kinds of things. So I said, sure. So she made a copy of the documents, and I made an appointment with this fellow, and he was a doctor, and I met him at his doctor's office. And as soon as I walked in, I saw he was kind of antagonistic, which I didn't understand. And then Hmm. when I showed him... The documents and I thought to establish legitimacy I would start by showing him letters from B'nai B'rith which was an organization they know about in Buenos Aires he exploded and he started screaming at me and this was all in Spanish my Spanish is very rudimentary but you know when someone screams it doesn't really matter what language they're screaming at you in you know something's wrong and, and then he was screaming and screaming and it turns out that um, he had approached B'nai and other organizations to help find his child, and indeed, the very person who signed the letter I was showing him is someone he had met, and all the the this person from B'nai B'rith had said to him was, "Have patience, have patience. We'll we'll do what we can." So this father, who never found his son, was arrested as a teenager, and never heard from again. And and I should say. Had the son lived, he would have been the age I was when I met this guy. So, you know, here I was like rubbing it in his face. And he explained he had such rage, no Jewish organization did anything for him, and so forth. So I just started crying. And when he saw, you know, the tears coming down my face, he recognized that I had not understood any of this, that... I was not there trying to propagandize for international organizations. I was just very sincere in thinking, you know, this might be of interest to you. Then he ended the conversation with the following. He said, in Treblinka, one of the Nazi concentration camps, they wrote on the wall, writing will outlast us. And then this, this, father who had lost his son took his finger and shook it in my face and said you're a writer so write and that was the end of the conversation so I came back home and I did I wrote a story of a semi-fictional character but I basically wrote capturing the experience I had just had and I entitled the story with the name of his son and the story was about him and the loss of his son. And so after it was published, it was published in a nice anthology, I sent a copy to this archivist in Buenos Aires asking if she would pass it along to the father, this doctor whom I had met. Three months later, I get an email from this doctor, thanking me, saying it had taken him three months to translate the story, how grateful he is that I listened to him, I heard him, that I wrote and kept his son's memory alive. So that I was writing for him. And thank goodness I was able to get the story to him. Just so he could know someone was indeed taking the situation seriously. And someone was indeed remembering his son. Um, Mm. You know, this, I there's a, a, a another, I wrote a little essay sometimes I write personal essays as, as well as uh, fiction although fiction's my main thing and I wrote a personal essay short about why write you know as a writing teacher you know this is a subject that comes up all the time with students and, and different people write for different reasons I think uh, most people who begin writing anyway are doing so because they have things they want to get off their chest. they have things they want to explore. It's important to them. Um, others do it for more commercial interest, also a legitimate reason, whatever. But I wanted to explore something different because I had attended a a show, a performance by children in Los Angeles of a play that was about that had been performed in the Terezin concentration camp. In Terezin, which is outside Prague, as you may know, the Nazis tried to use it as a bit of a showcase. They had, I think, at one point, 15,000 children there, and the kids would put on plays and so forth, and they would, the Nazis would invite the Red Cross to make it look like everything was fine and everybody was happy. Well, in fact, they were not happy. They were miserable and being starved and terrorized and all that stuff. And it made me think, this is a reason to write. Look at these kids, look at this play. We, we know it exists because it was written down. And so to write and document, it's kind of an important thing for the future. Who knows who will you know, come across what we write, but they might better understand today a hundred years from now, if they come across something that one of us writes today. So I think it's important to kind of just write a- as part of human history, in a way, mm. that we, yeah. you know, even if we're not writing about history, we are writing, reflecting our perspectives and our daily lives. And so maybe a hundred years from now, people will look back and say, what a fool that Jaffe guy was. But gosh, if he was typical, then there must have been a lot of fools around in Santa oh, Barbara.
1: Certainly certainly is. No. <laughs> you know, actually when we when we talk about that, you you are very uh, much a big part of of the stories you write. Yeah. Um so in the world the way it is now and the things going on, you know, from covid to uh uh black lives matter right. to uh, president dumbo right um you've got all of this stuff going on and all of this you know, thing, you know, emotion flying around. How, how do you keep that out of your books or do you incorporate it in the stories? Does it come through in your book?
0: Well, I have to say I'm not the best one to write, like take a contemporary issue and just spontaneously write about it. I'm someone who needs to sort of contemplate and process um, and that can be like, I'm talking about years, you know, like what's the significance of this? Um, I do it a little, but not a lot. I think what, what I have, I think, I think it was back like in the 19th century, a lot of writers, I think Balzac was one who would get ideas, Dostoevsky too, from things in the newspaper. You know, they'd see something, see something, a really bizarre or interesting story or character, and then they'd fictionalize it. The problem today is, you know, back then, you know, okay, so a few people read the newspaper. But today, any story is just instantly all over the world. So everybody knows it immediately. So for me to try to write, by the time I write a story um, about, say, um, George Floyd or a character like George Floyd, by the time I write it, by the time I get it out there, it's passe, and it will have been told a million times, and it will have been told better than I could possibly tell it. So I I don't consciously choose to do that. But what I will do, like for example, now I'm working on a novel that involves a a range of of characters of different ethnicities and races. That I purposely did because I want to reflect a more multicultural aspect of of society. I should say my husband, Leo, is originally from Puerto Rico. So my in-laws are Puerto Rican. So we are a mix, a Jewish, Latin American family. Um, My household is is multicultural. So I'm doing this, but as I'm doing it, I am very conscious, and this is the big challenge, of not misrepresenting anyone else's culture or ethnicity. I'm very comfortable writing about Puerto Ricans, but I'm not as comfortable writing about characters from other cultures because I fear either unconsciously lapsing into stereotypes or the other thing that's coming up now more and more is co-opting, meaning using my voice as a white american writer to tell the story of somebody who has not had a chance to tell his or her own story because so many writers who are not white do not have the same opportunities that i've had so i don't want to do that so when i do write about like multicultural stuff i do it from the perspective of a white man so that any limitations are clearly the the narrators which are are also mine so I don't pretend to be able to, to write a novel as a contemporary black man. I can't do that. I don't. You know, there's this old adage, "Write what you know." And I tell my students, "Well, that means that if you don't know something and you want to write about it, learn about it, so that it becomes something you know." But I think there's some things that I don't feel comfortable enough with. I don't feel that I can learn enough about it to write it sufficiently. And and one of those things is to get inside other uh, communities' heads to be able to write from a narrator's point of view. I can write from the outside looking at these people going through the world, but not enough to get inside. So that's a conscious limitation in answer to your question that I impose on myself, that I I won't uh, try to do that. Um, In terms of politics, um, it might be the political situation, might be background, um, or I'll do it in a metaphorical way rather than in a direct way. So, for example, um, in this collection that's coming out in the fall, Foreign Affairs. There's a story which is actually the most controversial story in there. And uh, my, my editor Ian and I talked a number of times about it um, so that he could, you know, he could see what my real intent was and uh, he was very good about including it. It's called In the Colony. What it is, is a story about uh, an American man who goes to Puerto Rico which is an American colony, and is sitting on the beach having a drink and you know enjoying his pina colada, sunny day by the beach. And all of a sudden, he notices a little girl is caught up in the waves and is going to drown. So he jumps off the, the balcony where he is, and he runs, and he races, and he saves her. Her mother is nearby, but the mother was paying attention to another child everybody is so grateful to him and they treat him as a hero and they want to treat him to drinks and to dinner and all this stuff. What the reader then comes to learn is why was he watching this little girl? Why was he the one to notice? And it turns out he's a pedophile. And so that's the controversial aspect of the story. But I wrote it as metaphor for the U.S., colonizing Puerto Rico and, and other, other areas, other parts of the world, where you have a powerful uh, country going in, offering good things, offering, as colonial powers did, either religion or economic benefits, supposedly, or other things, but what they're really doing is exploiting and taking advantage of the vulnerable and ultimately going to hurt them terribly. And that's really what the story's about, ultimately. So um, there I took a political idea, but chose to present it indirectly, obliquely, rather than to write a story about colonialism, for example. So, so that's kind of what I do, is I, I, I tend. so you won't likely see me writing about outrage at the Trump administration. you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Right. Right. Okay. I don't think it's that I'm looking for them. I think I think a lot of people who know my work would say I'm quite naturally dark, dark psychologically, not dark in terms of... Uh, I mean, it's actually hard. It's been hard for me to write a lot about violence, for example. Um, but I've had to push myself to do that because there have been stories that require that. Um, but in terms of... Like right now, what I'm working on is a novel about a serial killer. So that tells you I've, I've, I've gone through that barrier of not being able to, to deal with violence. Um, uh, it's fiction, of course, um, but I do sometimes so deal with social issues. Uh, For example, I I, I think I mentioned a little earlier that I wanted to write a story about this rabbi who had an affair. And what I did was I had a rabbi have an affair with his wife's African-American housekeeper. So, okay, so now race is an issue. Okay. So I ended up writing actually a few stories about these characters. And in one of them, the the rabbi... Uh, finally, after maybe eight years of not seeing the housekeeper who had given birth to his baby, goes to her house. And he's been giving child support all these years, but it's been secret, and he's never before gone to see his daughter. So he's, he's there meeting with the woman, and she says, there, has some, there is something that has bothered me my, all, all these years. If I had been white, and your daughter had been white, would you have come to see her? Would you have acknowledged her as your daughter? Because I really wanted to deal with this race question. And as I started writing this, I didn't know the answer. But as I was writing it, the answer came to me, and the answer was like, perfect, yes. And his answer was, I don't care that she's black. What I care about is she's not Jewish. Because in Jewish tradition, the, the child is the religion of the mother. You're not Jewish. She's not Jewish. That's why I wouldn't acknowledge her. And it's like, yes, that's it. For, the, for some of the awful, um, rigid uh, Jewish people I've known, the, the really orthodox, many of whom are rigid, not all by any means, but many of whom are, I have not seen a lot of racism. I have to be honest. I really haven't. I have seen a lot of, of, I don't even know the word, of uh, we have to just be pure among ourselves, meaning Jewish. And the hostility, not hostility, but the sense of, of, of not belonging is if you're not Jewish, you don't belong. Sorry, nothing we can do about it. That's just the way it is. So when this came out, I felt that was the right way for me to address this particular social issue, a current social issue of, of racism, that it, if this character wasn't for the rabbi in my story. It wasn't about racism. It was about a different kind of chauvinism. That's the word. A different kind of of chauvinism. So contemporary issues will find their their way into my stories that way, indirectly. Um, I don't, you know, I don't know um, what today's events, if they will make their way in, Uh, although I have, as I'm working through this new novel with with multicultural characters, I certainly have uh, an African-American character, and I'm thinking of having the narrator sort of acknowledge expressly the need to be extra sensitive because of the new awareness Uh, of the Black Lives Matter movement and the ways in which black people have been specifically oppressed here. So that might be, you know, that that a character might make uh, uh, an acknowledgement, a reference to current issues. But what, what has always interested me with writing, and I think will continue, is really the underlying psychological stuff of why people do what they do. For me, the most interesting question is why, um, more than what it is characters do. I have a friend in Santa Barbara who's a very successful writer of thrillers, you know, and and you know I bemoan the fact with her she and I meet for coffee and I bemoan how you know oh you know I, I, my sales aren't so great nobody's that interested in psychological stuff I mean people like what I write but it's not as I said you know she tells me the numbers you know the thousands and thousands of copies she sells <laughs> just like well, I really don't match that with, with my work. And she says, Dan, you have to write a thriller. She said, I would love to take you to a thriller conference. I'll introduce you to agents and all this stuff. And it's like, well, it's very exciting. Um, so I actually tried. And I studied thrillers, you know, read all the big names. It's not me, at least not yet. Maybe one day before I die, I'll <laughs> write one. But it's just not how my mind works. Um, that that kind of, of 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 plotting mind, I I for me plotting is just sort of how characters behave based on their psyches, but not so much someone out and about and doing things. And even this novel I'm working on now about a serial killer, it's not a, it's not really a thriller. It's more about trying to understand the characters. Um, so so that's kind of um. Uh, a limitation I have, but it's also what I enjoy doing. So I don't know that I would really take on, you know, some of the the, the more uh, dramatic things that we're seeing play out, um, you know, in in the news all the time. Uh, and actually, I also find, I mean, I, I really keep especially the last half year been very current with everything going on in the news i find it so overwhelmingly depressing i think it's important for me to understand all this and know about it but i don't want to spend more time on it when i write for me my right. writing is an escape within myself I think you really put your finger on it when you use the word you know therapy Uh, for me my writing is very therapeutic and um, if I could find a way to write you know about contemporary uh, politics or or social unrest uh, effectively I, I would love to but I don't I don't know that that's really my forte right now you know
1: Right, right. Well, I mean, uh, you know, writing about um, a serial killer is going to um, open open you up to it. I'm sure. hoping you're
0: right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm hoping you're right. I, I yeah. my, but my approach, even for this, uh, it, it is a little tongue in cheek, because right. you know, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to emphasize. Well, I guess that's it. That's really what I have. So it's a little tongue in cheek, and um, I'm playing with it and exploring it. And, and, but maybe I will. Maybe it will. Maybe it will make me, you know, more more skilled at uh, at, at uh, fast paced plotting. Uh, I should say that as a reader, I tend, I incline toward reading more psychologically oriented fiction myself. Um, but as a movie watcher, my tastes are broader. And I love watching fast-paced stuff. I love action stuff. I, I love, you know, uh, Harrison Ford and, and, and all his Raiders of the Lost Ark all kinds of stuff. Um I love that stuff. I love Liam Neeson as he, you know, goes around saving everybody. <laughs> um, uh, I, I really get into it. So, <laughs> my case is, is a little yeah. broad that way. <laughs>
1: Well, that's a that's a good thing you know I always say that you know it's more about how the sausage is made than how it's presented so <laughs> in the writing so that's yeah kind of um, Now do you have a web website or something that people can come find you at that you like certainly,
0: to Certainly certainly it's it's simply um dot com. And um, I have information up there about my various books and, and should anyone want to contact me, there's a, a you know, a contact uh, tab that can do that. Um, and, and there are even a few examples of me reading a few of my things uh, publicly. So, so people can find me there. Fantastic.
1: Now, we're going to have you on our website as well, so people listening and are on our, our website can just do one click and find you. Um. Oh, that's great. Thank you Uh, so much, Al. No problem. Well, thank you. This has been a great, great conversation. Um, Our guest has been author Daniel M. Jaffe. Thank you for being here.
0: My pleasure, I really enjoyed our conversation. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah.
1: Good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.